Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 4th, 2014. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word really says when we look at it in context. That's pretty much the uh, the whole idea behind a sermon, if you would. Now, uh, once a week we do our light episode. Today we will be doing our light episode uh, on our normal day. That's today. And uh, we're going to be continuing uh, listening to the in-depth in-depth biblical teaching provided by Pastor Ron Hodel of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, as he works his way through the epistle of uh, 1 Corinthians. So we're up to our next lecture in the series, if you would, and so let's get right to it. Here's Pastor Ron Hodel. Let's start with, uh, um, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians, and let's uh, look at uh, verses 20 through 25 right now. <clears throat> Paul's just uh, quoted from uh, the Septuagint version of Isaiah. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then in 20, he says, he writes, um, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." Um, Paul's just finished quoting from Isaiah, and Paul knows Isaiah very well. Uh, after all, Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, from, from Philippians chapter uh, 3, Paul writes about himself. He says, um, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that, uh, that, they, that they come from the right race, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is very theologically well-educated. And so, in one sense, you can hear Isaiah's words kind of echo in the questions that Paul asks. And that's important uh, because what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I am not saying anything new. This stuff has been said for eons. Uh, uh, Isaiah was saying what I'm saying. 
And he says, where is the wise man? Um, in Isaiah 18, um, Isaiah mocks the, the, um, the wise men of the, of the pharaohs who didn't see what was coming their way. They couldn't advise Pharaoh over the coming judgments on, on, on Egypt. And so perhaps the first question that Paul asks, where is the wise man is, is a, is a, is a, 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 a shot across the bow of the, of the Greek culture, you know, the, 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 those people that relish wisdom. And then he says, where is the scribe? Well, scribes write things down, and and in Isaiah chapter 33, Isaiah talks about the scribes who wrote down the amounts of tribute that Israel had to pay uh, uh, because they were uh, servants of of the Babylonians. Um, And and, uh, so some have proposed that since scribes write things down and record things, Paul is, is directing this question at the religious legal beagles, the record keepers, those who evaluate how well you're doing by, by how well you're keeping the law. Maybe this is a, a an aim or a question that he's, he's, uh, uh, targeting the, the rabbis with. And then the third question is Paul's question. It, it kind of targets anyone who argues against the wisdom of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. He says, where is the debater? Um, uh, anyone who argues against the true knowledge of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But regardless of who Paul's targeting here in these questions, all three of them, the wise man, the scribe, the debater, they are all of this age, Paul says. Um, what he's pointing out there is that uh, he pointed out to the Galatians that this age is, is an evil present age, and uh, it has ways that it evaluates uh, the, the things of this world that are not consistent with, with the gospel, and thus they're not God's standards. Um, but this temporary age, this age, this evil age, this present evil age, is, is uh, only temporary. Okay? Where's the... the Wise man, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Verse 21. Um, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In a sense, what Paul does here is he starts to echo Jesus. Uh, in, In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Okay? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It pleased God. His gracious will through the folly of what we preach. Um, Paul echoing Jesus a little bit. Um, and then he's going to say the same thing to the church at Rome a little bit later on. If you look at uh, verse 21 there, uh, let me, you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, and I'll read Romans 1, 21. Um, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I think what Paul's doing here is he is using Isaiah, and he's using Jesus to show how God rejects the the world's values. Um, He raises up what the world despises. Uh, He's saying Isaiah and Jesus and Paul are all saying the same thing. I'm not saying anything new. And then what Paul does is he speaks of of preaching Christ crucified. And that doesn't just mean the act of preaching. Um, If you want to see whose car that is, you can just fold your hands and we'll all bow our heads. And then if you think that's your car, you can go out and turn the alarm off. In faith. faith, That's right. Uh, um, So he has in mind the content of his preaching. Christ crucified, the whole content. He's not just talking about preaching. And uh, um, this is going to be very important later on when we start chapter 2. This is, content is going to be very important later on. Um, the world, on the other hand, uh, tries to determine truth apart from the gospel, if indeed it's even trying to figure out what truth is uh, any, anymore. Um, 
And Paul breaks the world into, into two groups. He talks about the Jews and the Greeks or the non-Jews. Um, and he says the Jews look for miraculous signs. That's what they're looking for. Uh, you remember in, math, in, in Matthew chapter 12, it says, some, uh, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Right? But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The only sign that Jesus was willing to give was his death and his resurrection. Um, But of course, that's considered rather foolish, rather scandalous, because um, to the Jews, anyone who was crucified was under God's curse. From Deuteronomy, it talks about anyone who hangs on a, from a tree is cursed. And the Jews were demanding signs, and now the sign that Jesus is going to give is his death, and of course also his resurrection. But then to the Jews, anyone hanging from, from the tree of the cross is going to be a, a, a most scandalous person, and that, that death, a most shameful death. And so Christian apologists throughout the ages have had to, to go to great lengths to explain why the Messiah had to be crucified. But the cross for the Jews was a stumbling block. Um, and, and not just for the Jews, but, but for, for many. The, the Greek word stumbling block, uh, is the, the word scandalon. Okay? Uh, a scandalon is something that causes you to trip and stumble. Uh, we get the word scandal from it. If there's a scandal in the government, it causes us to lose faith in the government. Okay? Uh, scandal on the cross is something that, that can cause people to, if you will, if they're looking at it the wrong way, lose faith. It's a stumbling block to the Jews who are demanding signs, but only the signs that they want. Jews demand signs. Um, and Greeks, which also is a reference to all the Gentiles, uh, look for wisdom. And they really find no wisdom in the paradox of Christ crucified. You know, Christ, the Messiah the royal savior, um, and then crucified kind of denotes the opposite. There are two words that don't go together well. What do they call it? Oxymoron? Um, pretty ugly? Government intelligence? <laughs> Jumbo shrimp? Um, and uh, uh, Microsoft works. Uh, I liked that one. Um, there's no wisdom in it. It appears totally foolish. The thought of a crucified Savior is ridiculous. Um, just like to say it like that, you know, no God worth his salt would, would do this kind of thing. I mean, obviously, people are made to serve the gods, not gods uh, to serve people. I mean, um, but, uh, the, you know, so, so it becomes foolishness to the, to the, to the non-Jews. There's a third group of people that Paul mentions, though, and that's those who are called, the called out ones, the converted ones, um, called out from the Jews and the Gentiles. So it transcends the Jewish-Greek boundaries that were so evident. Um, these are the Christians, and Paul includes the Corinthians among these people. To them, Christ crucified wasn't a sign of weakness. To them, Christ crucified wasn't a sign of defeat. It was God's power. It was God's wisdom. Now, of course, the world's never going to look to the cross for power and wisdom. But then again, God says, my ways are not your ways, nor are uh, my thoughts your thoughts. And so Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And content is going to be very important, as I said, as we get to chapter 2. Um, it's great to have a good preacher. It's wonderful to have a wordsmith in the pulpit. Um, but what Paul's going to be getting at is don't trust the fancy wordcrafting. Right? Um, the substance is what matters, and we preach Christ crucified. 
So part of what Paul's saying here is uh, the gospel needs to be preached and it needs to be preached in a straightforward manner. It's not to be manipulated. It's not to be watered down to make it somehow acceptable. Yeah, we're going to water down your poison and make it more acceptable to drink. Yeah. Now, watering things down doesn't make it more acceptable. Um, uh, it, 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 the gospel can't be taken for granted because, well, everybody already knows the gospel and so we can move on from the gospel and talk about other more important things because you already know Jesus died for your sins anyway. So let's go on from there. Um, it's, it's not to be thought of as something that's, that, uh, is over preached, even if it seems to be weak and foolish. Uh, later on, Paul will say, preach it in season and out of season when it's popular to preach it. And when it's not popular to preach it, preach it anyway. Because its power is precisely in its weakness. And later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about that. Its power is in its weakness. Uh, and then Paul gives two examples of how God uses the foolish and the weak. Uh, let me read uh, 26 through 31. This is the first example. For consider your callings, your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to earthly standards or worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's constantly turning things upside down. And the first, uh, and first thing, the first thing Paul gets at here is take a look at your lack of status when God called you to faith. And the second example he's going to give is himself. All right. And so first he says, look at your lack of status when God called you to faith. Now, there were some in Corinth who were well off. Some, Rich people had embraced Christianity in Corinth. Men like Stephanus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. You have Sosthenes, uh, Crispus, Gaius, Erastus, and you have women like Chloe. All right. But the majority of Christians had very humble origins. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about how many of them were, had been slaves and were now freedmen, or some of them were even slaves. Uh, and, and yet God calls those who are of low degree. Now, uh, it's really nice to be able to boast that we have, you know, um, this rich person in our congregation and this well-known person and this wonderful person and these, you know, all these people that everybody knows on and so forth. Um, and, and it's, uh, uh, and, you know, that's, that's what you get. Uh, but, uh, you know, to boast of, well, my congregation is mostly made up of sinners and tax collectors and uh, people don't like to boast of that kind of thing. Um, and so the, the early Christians, uh, had to defend, if you will, um, Christianity, uh, because of the humble origins of those whom God has called to faith. And this didn't go unnoticed by early, uh, by, by, um, early philosophers and early opponents to Christianity. Let me read from a, from a, an opponent of Christianity from the second century. His name is Celsus. And he mis, and he misquotes Paul. And this is what he says. Their injunctions, Christians injunctions, this is what he said Christians say. Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. 
um, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, it kind of reminds me, you know, how many, it was a number of years ago, uh, Ted Turner, um, the great sailor and wealthy businessman, uh, made you know, public comment, Christianity is for losers. Yeah, you remember that. Um, now, just because uh, we don't want to uh, break the Eighth Commandment here, um, apparently he has made a bit of a, 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 of a turnabout on that, by the way. But you know what? In one sense, he was completely right. Um, Christianity is for losers. Okay. Now, everyone is a loser. Okay. Ted, you're right. Everyone's a loser. So Christianity is for everyone. Um, there are no winners in this. Uh, uh, you are going to die. It is going to happen. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that whether or not you're a Christian isn't dependent on your social status. Um, it's dependent upon realizing that everything that people tend to boast of their education, their wealth, their prestige, their power, their, you know, birth, uh, their, um, how far they can trace back their Lutheran heritage or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's, it's rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul points that out, as I read earlier, uh, with the, with the, the Philippians when he, when he talks about what a, what a, what a, Hebrew of Hebrews he is, and then he says of that, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul says, many of you were, were slaves, um, not rich and wealthy and famous and on and so forth. And kind of the pattern that Jesus set. Sure, there were some wealthy people that followed Jesus, but, but many of his followers weren't from the privileged class. They were the tax collectors, the poor, the sinners. Um, Jesus even praises, uh, Jesus even praises the Father for hiding the mysteries of the kingdom from the wise and understanding. You think of the song of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You think of the song of Hannah before her in the Old Testament. They both sang about God putting down the mighty from their thrones and exalting those of low degree. And who are those of low degree? The foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised, the last, the lost, the least, the lowest, the tax collectors, the sinners. But God turns the tables on all of this, on the world and its values. And he says, the, the royal, the, those who are looked down upon become the royal heirs. And those who have nothing to boast about in this world have indeed everything to boast in because they have been gifted with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all the treasures of divine wisdom and knowledge that are so highly praised in, in the world, really, but not divine wisdom praised in the world, but praised in the Old Testament, it's all bound up in Christ. Christ is wisdom. Christ uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in Proverbs as, as the personification of wisdom. Um, and Christ is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all wisdom and power. Uh, and, and, uh, and knowledge. And Paul calls this wisdom or this, this treasure that we have in Christ, he says, it is our, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And those terms kind of overlap with Paul. You can define them individually, but here with Paul, uh, he, he's not trying to say them in some sort of chronological way. First you have uh, righteousness, and then you have sanctification, and then you have redemption. He's not trying to do something chronologically. He's not doing something sequential. I think here he's just saying these are three ways of saying the same thing. Um, in Christ, uh, you are righteous. 
Uh, Jesus is the righteous branch of David. He is called the Lord our righteousness. And because of the great exchange, what do the Germans call it? The sweet swap. Uh, we have received Jesus' righteousness. Of course, he receives our sin. So Christ, our righteousness, our sanctification, which again is something we receive from Christ. Um, his holiness is conferred on us. Our sins are washed away in the waters of holy baptism. He is our, he is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. And the third gift is redemption. And redemption would take the Jewish uh, hearers back to the whole story of the Exodus, where God buys back the, the, the children of Israel by the blood of the one-year-old unblemished lamb uh, and its blood painted on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. Um, so Christ becomes our Passover lamb, and he buys us back. We're bought with a price, is the way he puts it uh, later on in 1 Corinthians. And then Paul clinches his argument by quoting from Jeremiah when he says, Christ is our wisdom so that we might boast in the Lord. Are you wise? In Christ you are, but your boast is in the Lord, not not in yourself. And so what's being emphasized in all of this is that everything is from him. Our entire existence, our status, our standing, our present life, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, it's all in and from him. So if you have a boast, you know what to boast in. It's in Christ. Um, let's go to chapter 2. So he's taken, he, uh, uh, God uses uh, foolish things like us, and he calls us to faith, you know, like the Corinthians. And then he's going to use himself as an example. Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians chapter, chapter 2, the first uh, five verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Okay. So he points to his unsophisticated hearers, and now he points to the unsophisticated pastor himself. Um, and he uses himself as an example of the weak and foolish nature of the gospel. He reminds the Corinthians that when he first came to them, he came to them in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And in spite of that, the power of the cross went out. Okay? People were brought to faith. Now, why did he come in fear, weakness, and trembling? Well, first off, because he was scared to death. That's why he came, in fear and trembling. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. There's something else that's going on. He's been talking about content, and I think this is what, this is what's going on here as well. Um, background is, is important. Uh, the social setting is important. I th what is the German phrase? The sets im Leben. Okay. The setting in life will tell us something about what was going on. Um, I use sets in Leben for a reason, um, uh, to talk about what was going on then. It's because it's good to know what was going on. Uh, there's a danger with that word and, and that phrase though. And the danger is this. Um, it's very easy for us to take Sets and Laban and say, well, that's what was going on for the Corinthians back then, but this is now. Okay, so what happened back then, it tells us a whole lot about history and on and so forth. Good to know, but this is now. And then to start doing your theology like that and your understanding and your reading of Scripture like that. Um, and to start uh, using it to explain away what God in Scripture is telling us. Okay, let me give you an example, uh, the example of homosexuality. Okay, it's, it's, uh, the practice of homosexuality is condemned in scripture. All right. Now, the Sets and Laban people of today's way of doing theology do this. What Paul was condemning back then was something that should be condemned. All right. What it was, was you had powerful men 
showing their dominance over weaker men and slaves by uh, committing immoral acts with them. Not uh, because it shows my control and my power over you. And that's not what it's about. Um, uh, now, uh, the whole picture of homosexuality is uh, that it's a loving relationship between two people who are in love with one another. And so what's happening now isn't what was happening back then. Certainly we would all condemn what was happening back then, but you need to read Paul with a Setsam Laban kind of uh, way of looking at things and say, now what would Paul say today if he knew what was going on today? Uh, he, and the, the idea is, well, then obviously he would change his tone. Now you can see where the danger comes in this. You have to start saying, okay, I wonder if Paul then would change his tone if he uh, about adultery or about stealing or about lying um anything that he commented on in the past i wonder if he would change his tone about jesus being the one way to the father maybe back then it was true but maybe now there's many ways to god okay so you can see sets and laban kind of doing your theology like that can become a danger um, I use it here, though, because uh, in one sense, what was going on for the Corinthians, well, what did, what did uh, Ecclesiastes say? There's nothing new under the sun. The same thing was going on then as is going on today. Chapter 1 was a, a, a little bit about divisions over leadership, um, and individuals were becoming more important than uh, the message. People flocked to pastors that they found to be more acceptable in their way of thinking about it. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. All right. People flocked to these guys because they thought that they were more effective. They got better results. Uh, they were easier on the ears. You know, Pastor Jones is so much more loving than Pastor Johnson. All right. And so I'm going to go to Pastor Jones's church because he's so much more loving. Um, you've heard that before. Maybe, you know, um, what Paul's getting at here is, or I should say, Paul finds himself at the beginning of what was called the Second Sophistic Movement. It was a philosophical and rhetorical movement. Uh, it was the hottest intellectual thing going. All right. Uh, let me just read uh, this little comment here. The Roman sophists hailed from the upper classes. They were highly popular speakers, sometimes arriving at the beck of a client to support him in court at other times answering an invitation to discourse on various issues and influence public feeling. Hmm. They would select a topic from a broad range of subjects and make speeches in various genres, delivering them in such a way as to thrill audiences with their artful style and stagey gestures. It was essential for them to keep their listeners with them as they were totally dependent on their approval, approval ratings. They could at any moment be asked to extemporize, to speak on a subject on which they were not prepared. The sophists enjoyed great public publicity and social acceptance and had numerous students in several regions of the Roman dominions since they were always on the road. Many of them even enjoyed the favor of the emperor. And Athens, which is only 51 miles away from Corinth, was a center for this movement. Okay, and the aim of the second sophistic movement was to was um, to use reasoning and arguing in a way that sounds correct, but it just might be completely false. All right, um, they were. Uh, we can get the word sophisticated. Um, sophistic. Okay, sophisticated isn't isn't such a bad word today, but back then. Um, it would have this idea of, of being able to sway people with your, with your rhetoric. And it didn't really matter whether it was true. It just mattered whether it was, was entertaining. Um, uh, this, the sophistic movement was, uh, was the, was the rebirth of rhetoric for rhetoric's sake for entertainment. Okay. Now tie that to today. Uh, they had no television. They had no internet. They had no Broadway. They did have theaters, all right? They had no iTunes festival, okay? So entertainment consisted of speakers who would go around to the city squares and give a presentation 
with the hopes that they would be entertaining and that they would be taken in and, and uh, financed by the wealthy. They'd pick a topic, spin it out, and have fun with it. Um, now, we do the same today. Uh, today's parallels. David Letterman, Jay Leno, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert. Right? They find something to rag on. Content really doesn't matter as long as the audience laughs. Right? Um, uh, being truthful doesn't necessarily matter. Um, sorting out all of the details doesn't really matter. Um, giving both sides and both views to the whole thing does not matter. It's simply entertainment for entertainment's sake and uh, for many done to sway an audience one way or another. So the situation that Paul's dealing with is this. Should Paul's preaching and the delivery of the gospel be evaluated on the basis of how other speakers are speaking of uh, and being evaluated at that time. People were used to hearing the speakers in the public squares, entertaining them, judging them by how, how, how entertaining they were. And should Paul be presenting the gospel so that people will be entertained by it? Okay. And, and, the point that we're going to come to and the point that Paul comes to is that content really does matter. The gospel actually does something to people. Whereas the second sophistic movement, uh, content was secondary and it was purely about entertaining people. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, and we come back to the balance of today's lecture with Pastor Ron Hodel on the Epistle of 1 Corinthians. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today.
Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't give you in-depth biblical teaching like you're hearing on today's program. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lecture by Pastor Ron Hodel on the uh, epistle of 1 Corinthians. Here we go. So that's what Paul's up against when he comes to preach the gospel. Um. You're, you're not very entertaining, Pastor. Yeah, our pastor can tell jokes, and he gets us laughing, and it's just a rip-roaring good time in church. And uh, you're really, you know, not, not nearly as entertaining. Um, now, by saying that, Paul's not giving pastors permission to be boring. I liked what uh, Dr. Rosenblatt once said, uh, a pastor that makes the gospel boring. Uh, there's no license for that. Uh, that's a that's a terrible thing. This is the, the 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 gospel is not boring at all. This is the most amazing news that you could ever hear. Uh, don't make it boring. And it's also not that Paul is being anti-intellectual, which is how some read this this section. Um, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Um, you know, I, I, knowledge and training and whatnot. None of that's important. It's just important to preach. All right. Um, so what Paul is saying is those of you who want me to be more entertaining, um, I want you to realize that people came to faith, not because I was a great preacher. That is not why people come to faith. Um, in fact, Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm not a great preacher. I'm not eloquent. I'm not a skilled debater, but my goal is, is, uh, my goal isn't to wow people, um, my goal is to simply present the mystery of the gospel in a simple, straightforward, sincere manner. Um, to get out of the way of the gospel. To let the Spirit of God do its work. All right? And the pastor to stay out of the, out of the way of the gospel. Um, and of course, you can kind of see that challenge to pastors today. Um, some... Uh, You've heard sermons. I've heard sermons where, I mean, the 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 sermon is really quite amazing, um, and the the illustration is absolutely captivating, and you remember the illustration. But my gosh, what was the sermon about? But I remember the story about. You know, but you know how that ends up tying to the gospel. Um, so what Paul's saying here is he didn't want anything to overshadow the gospel. To present Christ is the church's only essential task. Um, for Paul, Christ crucified then, you see, and, the, and that whole narrative is going to be the center of all that he has to say in his preaching and his teaching. 
So it says, he came to Corinth not in the manner that you would expect as a practitioner of the second sophistic movement with its flowery language and on and so forth. He came not to entertain people. He came not to do anything that would overshadow the gospel because it's not his message. It's God's message. It's the testimony of, of God that he is proclaiming. Um, he's preaching the mystery of God's plan of salvation. Uh, and so he wants to stay completely out of the way of that. Um, for I did not resolve to know anything among you rather than this, Jesus, in the state of having been crucified. And that's why I preach the way I do, he says. It's not my message. It's God's message. Right? Um, as I said, some people take that to be Paul's being an anti-intellectual, that smart people don't matter, that a seminary training doesn't matter, it's a hindrance. Um, you know, truth is, probably, Paul was probably the most sophisticated uh, intellectual New Testament preachers uh, and apostles of, of, of the time. Yeah. Very well educated. Uh, what he's saying is, this is why I came to you the way I did. This is why I don't use flowery language. This is why I'm not entertaining. This is why my Nielsen ratings are terrible. Um, it's because the message that I have placed on me is one that I didn't choose. Um, and the message dictates the manner of my speaking. In other words, it doesn't make me shine. It makes Christ and him crucified shine. That's the important thing. Right. Um, Paul says, I came to Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. And I ask, why fear and trembling? I mean, he's the great St. Paul. Well, you got to kind of look at where Paul had been coming from. Um, Paul had vivid memories going through his mind of a terrible beating and imprisonment that he received in Philippi. Terrible. Um, he had visions of the riots that took place in, in Thessalonica and how he had to escape at midnight so they wouldn't be lynched. Um, he had to beat a hasty withdrawal from Berea. Oh yeah, the Berean Christians would, would test what Paul had to say against the scriptures. A very good thing for us to do. But uh, many others wanted, wanted him to uh, uh, go away in a very bad way. Um, he went to Athens, and people were hardly impressed with what he had to say. Uh, and, and now he comes to Corinth. <laughs> All right? Thessalonica, and Philippi, and Berea, and Athens. That's fluff. Now he's coming to hardcore Corinth. All right? The port city. This is a tough place. Um, he's jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire when he comes to Corinth. And that's why he comes to Corinth in fear and much trembling. Um, he's scared. Uh, he needed, a, if you will, um, God to lift him up to be able to go on in Corinth. And that's exactly what Paul received. Um, Paul received assurance from the Lord in the form of a vision. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, um, St. Luke uh, records this. He says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So God told Paul, Preach the word. And that's what he did. And through his preaching... Through his teaching, God demonstrated his spirit and his power. All right? Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Um, the power of God seen in creation, uh, uh, and certainly in the gospel, because the, he, he tells the Romans that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Okay, The Greek word for power is dunamis. We get the word dynamite. They had the word for dynamite before they even had dynamite. Um, but uh, it's the power of salvation to all who believe. Name things and then invent them. Right? No, uh, we didn't even invent it. 
was the Chinese, I think. Um, uh, one of the things I think that's, that, that Paul's getting at here uh, is that the apostles' preaching seems at times to have been supported with miraculous signs. Uh, Acts chapter 2, it says, O men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Um, or from uh, Romans chapter 15, I will not, I, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring gen, bring to the Gentiles, bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Iconium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Even in Galatians, um, the English word miracles is the Greek word powers um, in, in Galatians 3 verse 5. So it seems what's happening is that the preaching of Paul is also accompanied by powers or different miracles that, that uh, happen amongst the Corinthians, things that people see, things that are obvious that happen when Paul preaches Christ, right? And I think you end up finding that out on the mission field, um, just kind of as an aside. Um, your missionaries uh, speak. You go to go to uh, go to go to a, a place where missionaries are talking about what ha- about their work in the mission field, and you'll hear stories about what are obviously miracles. Things that, that happen. Um, the pointing people to Christ. And then once people come to Christ, it seems the miracles go away. Or they become less evident. Um, and the preaching continues. Uh, but, but Paul's talking a little bit about not just his preaching, but also the, the miraculous signs that God was doing among them. Um, but whether it was word or deed or both, everything was directing the Corinthians uh, to put their trust in the power of God. Verse 6. I'll read 6 and 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Um, Paul warned the Corinthians about the wisdom, you know, wisdom things, but he's not, uh, but more along the lines of the wisdom that was set forth in the second sophistic movement. Uh, Here he speaks about real wisdom, true wisdom, God's wisdom. God's wisdom is preached when when Christ crucified is preached. Uh, At the end of the last chapter, he talked about uh, the wisdom of God brings righteousness. It brings salvation. It brings redemption. Um, what Paul means by mature here, uh, the Greek word is, is teleos. It means perfect. All right. We speak among the perfect ones is what he says. What he's talking about is the church. Um, we don't, we don't like to talk that way because it can be, uh, it can be misconstrued, but we are the perfect ones. When we are in Christ, we are righteous, not with the righteousness of our own, but with the righteousness that has been imputed to us, that has been credited to us by Christ, but we are perfect. We are righteous when you understand it correctly. Um, One of the reasons Paul brings this up is sometimes we act mature, perfect, righteous, and sometimes we act immature. And the Corinthians had been acting immaturely. um, And this Wisdom, true wisdom, God's wisdom was beginning to seem foolish to them. And so Paul's solution, Paul's got a solution for them. And the solution is not to give them steps to follow to improve their lives or a list of moral imperatives to live up to. Paul's solution is to preach the gospel to them again. That's his solution. Uh, in in uh, chapter 3, he's going to begin by, by telling them that he uh, was not able to give them such solid food 
solid food being the wisdom food, the, the, the meat of the depths of Christian theology built on Christ. Rather, he had to feed them milk. Um, milk being the simple, straightforward message of Christ crucified once again. Because that's all they could handle. Um, they were being like people who had never heard God's law and God's gospel before. And so he needed to preach the gospel to them again. All right. Now, we always all need to have the gospel preached to, to us again and again and again. Um, but as we mature in Christ, we get, we, you know, we study theology more. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's a good thing. We get the meat of, of theology and, and we should do that. But, but never to forget the gospel. Um, Paul has to start over with the, with the Corinthians again. Um, but Paul also makes it clear that the wisdom he offers is not of this age. It's not of the rulers of this age. That's all doomed to pass away, he says. Um, in contrast to the wisdom of this age is the apostle's message. It's not a human message. It can't be, it can't be, uh, evaluated by human criteria. It's, it's God's wisdom in the form of a mystery, he says, which God decreed before the ages. Uh, God foreordained this. In other words, Jesus was not plan B after the fall. God had foreordained, foreordained this from before the beginning of time. It was God's goal to restore creation, to transform it, to make it perfect, to, to make it in such a way that it can no longer fall in Christ. And this mystery is now being revealed, Paul says, and it was designed by God for, he says, for our glory. For our glory. Um, in other words, it's what God foreordained before creation, that believers be illuminated brighter and brighter, and that the apparent glory of the world uh, passes away. Uh, and then he says, if the rulers of this world had really understood this, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before all ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Um, verse 9 is a, is a quote. Uh, and uh, some say it's from Isaiah chapter 64, but it's quite different. Um, Origen, uh, the early uh, church theologian Origen, attributes it to some non-canonical writing that we, that we no longer have. Um, Paul uses all different kinds of sources to support, to support his preaching. Um, but the point is that the wisdom of this world is extremely short-sighted. It's entertaining now. Um, but it's nothing in comparison to what God has, God has prepared for, for those who love him. All right. Why don't I stop at this uh, point? Verse, uh, verse, I'll, I'll start up at verse 10 next week. Uh, it's, a, it's a good stopping point. Any thoughts or questions as we, uh, as we uh, have a little bit more time? Yes. This will probably seem obvious to most people, the answer, but it's not. It, it continues to come up in my thoughts. Um, we call ourselves Lutherans. And not only that, we call ourselves Missouri Synod Lutherans. Um, how do we reconcile that with the idea of, of not following Paul or Apollos or how do we explain to people that we're not following Luther we're following Christ as sure. Luther did or how do we how do we do how that? do we get sure. around that sure right because it continues to come up in 
in the right. world. Right, right. No, that's very true. That's very true. Um, Luther never wanted um, this to be named after him, okay? Um, uh, all the good names were taken. Um, you know? Catholic was already taken. Catholic means universal. Um, Orthodox, right teaching, was already taken. You had the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. And, you know, so you know, there's very few names that you can pick. No, um, but but uh, the good names have already been taken. Sorry. Um, yeah, uh, you know, let's say the whole thing. Let's let's just say the whole thing blew up. Okay, uh, it, it all blew up. Nobody belongs to. We, we all we all are Christian. We all have our theology. Okay, that's right, right here from. Uh, but all the church bodies blew up. Now everybody's got to come down at some point, and, and and come down, and we usually come down together with others who believe the same things we believe. All right. Um, names are simply an identification of a group of people who are walking together. That's what the word synod means, is walking together. People that understand the scriptures the same way. Okay? There's probably a little bit of latitude in there, okay? Um, but, but people that understand the scriptures the same way tend to walk together and tend to worship together. Okay? We, we know that you, uh, there would be, uh, it, it's craziness to, to say that there's many ways, if God has said something here, um, there's, there's, there's the way he intended it to be be understood. Um, and so the danger, I think, is doing what I said with that second sophistic movement, uh, where they are not the second sophistic movement, but um, the, uh, the idea of understanding Scripture in different ways. You know, well, homosexuality was bad back then because it was domination. Uh, today it's uh, good because it's loving relationship. Um, how do people come down in, in different groups? Um, and we somehow have to identify those groups. I mean, what, 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 what sign would we put out there to identify us? Okay? You might not like Lutheran. You might not like Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But what would you say that would identify who we are and what we stand for? You see? Um, everybody else has, has, quote, signs too. All right? Um, and uh, it just is a way to identify what this group believes, teaches, and confesses officially. All right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of hard. I'd, I'd find it very difficult to believe in Jesus and, and uh, say, but I really like the Hindu church. So I'm going to go there. I just don't have anything in common. Here I have something in common. And I gather together with people who have something in common. And what we have in common is not an entertaining pastor. Um, we have a good looking pastor and the other pastor. Um, <laughs> Uh, this one is pretty ugly, uh, but uh, um, but uh, the the but um, we, we've we've come down together in content. What we believe the scriptures are teaching, we've gathered together. Whether it's called Missouri Synod Lutheran or uh, you you name it, it's got to have a name. I, I don't know if that helps. Yeah. yeah, it can be a challenge. It can open a it can open a conversation. Yeah, it can open a conversation. Um, we have time for one more, maybe. Um, yes. I wasn't looking because I wanted to ignore you. I thought I'd seen Bob's hand first, but uh, I think he disappeared. Yeah. I wanted to know, um, some people have told me that, and pointed in Scripture where gifts and miracles have ceased, especially miracles and visions. and then, But then other Christians point to scripture that says they haven't. And then missionaries nowadays see miracles. Um, so they haven't ceased. Yeah, that's been a debate within the, within our church body too, um, especially as well. Um, and, uh, um, I'm simply of the opinion from what I read in scripture and what I hear, um, that the, that miracles on the mission field happen. 
Now, here's the danger is that I, I, that's my, my only quote from Kierkegaard is a faith begun by miracles needs miracles to sustain it. And the danger then is that we start focusing on the miracles because that's the signs and wonders and everybody's the bells and whistles and everybody gets all excited about that. And I can show that to you and say, ah, look, look at this. I, it's kind of hard for me to show you Jesus death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So let's just push that aside and let's talk about the miracles and the miracles then start taking, taking precedent. And that's what you hear about rather than the simple gospel message of Christ's death and resurrection for my sin, for the forgiveness of my sins. And I think that's, uh, I think that's what happens. So, you know, you, yeah. Does that answer your question or? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But it is a debate in our synod whether they have ended or not. Um, but, but it's almost like the miracles that God does <laughs> It's almost as if they're almost hidden from our sight. As I said, I think the greatest, and the greatest miracle, I said uh, before, um, the, the, the greatest miracle isn't that somebody was healed. The greatest miracle is that they weren't healed and they still believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and loves them very much. That's an even greater miracle than, yeah, I got healed. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.